0: You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on Working, we're talking to individuals whose jobs touch on aspects of LGBTQ life. Not long ago, the philosopher Judith Butler, who's famous for books like Gender Trouble and Bodies That Matter, the kind of books that maybe frustrated you in a gender studies class in college, was burned in effigy in Brazil. It's a horrifying story, but it's also one that speaks to the powerful and ongoing reach of an academic field that Butler helped create, one typically known as queer theory. We wanted to understand what it means to work on this thing called queer theory more fully, so we chatted with Elizabeth Freeman, a professor of English at the University of California, Davis. In this episode, Freeman shares some thoughts about what it means to think and teach queerly. She also discusses her time editing the journal GLQ, which is the leading academic venue for queer theory, And she explores the connection between this philosophically informed field and real-world activism. Then, in a Slate Plus Extra, Freeman answers a question about essential works of queer theory. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from Working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash workingplus. What is your name and what do you do?
1: My name is Elizabeth Freeman, and I am professor of English at the University of California Davis, also specializing in gender sexuality studies.
0: What does that mean, gender and sexuality studies in this case, especially within uh, an academic field like English?
1: It's the study of, um, on some level, sometimes it's the study of simply um, literatures by women and sexual minorities, um, including lesbians and gays, but also transsexual people and uh, intersex people and so on and so forth um, mm-hmm. it can also mean a kind of critical heterosexuality studies so that sometimes I have my students reading things about the marriage plot and sort of taking that apart and thinking about um, how it is that heterosexuality is not so natural after all
0: right the, the constructedness of all of our sexual norms exactly
1: <laughs> right? exactly yeah. I was going to say, and you know, sometimes it involves the teaching them the kind of the history and of the concepts that we have used to study gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. So, from something as simple as, you know, the nature nurture debates or essentialism, you know, gender essentialism, the idea that you're born with it versus, um, I know, social constructionism, the idea that we have made up some of these categories, um, all the way through to concepts like performativity, um, Judith Butler's idea that um, gender is something we do rather than gender being what we are. So it's a very wide ranging field.
0: Yeah. You, your work, I mean, another way to, to put this, or to describe this collection of areas of inquiry um, is, is this label queer theory um, that, that often mm-hmm. gets used to describe this kind of academic work. Is that a term you're comfortable with, with regard to your own work? Would you think of yourself as a queer theorist?
1: Um, yeah. I mean, it's funny. Sometimes queer theory doesn't count as critical theory in the academy. It's, you know, it's, there are not enough dead white men, but I absolutely identify (laughs) as a queer theorist. (laughs) Uh Um, and the reason I say gender sexuality studies has more to do with kind of the, the configuration of, of how things are laid out at UC Davis. Um, but I came Uh into queer theory in the early 1990s when what that meant was, um, in part responding to the AIDS epidemic. Um, mm-hmm. And doing activism around that. Um, it meant um, reading French feminism and thinking about lesbian aesthetics. Um, mm-hmm. It meant trying to understand um, how deconstruction, the theory of deconstruction could apply to gender. Um, mm-hmm. So that the term queer uh, really in the 90s became a way to um, both have a critical relationship to some older formations of lesbian gay studies and um to kind of signal, um, like it's sort of you know, as an umbrella term to draw together um, various uh, sexual minorities. So mm. I, I'm really of that of that era, and so I do very much identify um, with the idea of queer theory, even as I recognize some of its limitations.
0: You brought up a moment ago a kind of complex distinction that might be difficult to unpack um, fully in the context of this conversation, but I think is still important, which was this distinction that some stress between uh, critical theory, uh, this form of academic philosophical inquiry roughly associated with uh, a group of European scholars known as the Frankfurt School, European and American scholars known as the Frankfurt School and their descendants, uh, intellectual descendants, um, and and queer theory. Um, But... I think it's interesting that you brought that up in in part because it it speaks to the way that some maybe denigrate queer theory, that they've dismissed it uh, as Mm -hmm. a field of academic inquiry. Do you feel that the kind of work you do, the kind of questions you're tackling, some of the the issues that you brought up a moment ago, uh, is taken seriously within academia?
1: I suppose it depends on where you go in academia. I mean I do Mm -hmm. think that there are – people who dismiss it as very much a sort of a niche specialty and something that was trendy a while ago and is connected to a particular era and doesn't have any relevance beyond that. But I think that's absolutely wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And just dialing back just a little bit, you know, you'd ask me about my teaching and maybe kind of clarifying something about the way that I teach queer theory might, might be helpful, um, which is that I tend to teach it in sort of according to three critical genealogies. And the first one is women of color feminism from the 1980s and 90s. Um, mm. Where people like Gloria Anzaldúa and Jerry Moraga and Audre Lorde were first theorizing what it meant to be um, a sexual dissident, you know, somebody mm. who um, did not align themselves with either kind of normative heterosexuality or normative whiteness and who understood that how those two things inflected one another.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so when I begin with my students with that genealogy, they're often very surprised because they think queer theory began with Judith Butler or Eve Sedgwick. Um, and then my second strand that I weave in is um AIDS theory. um people like Douglas Crimp, um who were um, doing Act up, the AIDS Coalition to unleash power. They were doing that kind of activism, trying to get drugs into bodies, trying to um fight the government's sort of neglect of the AIDS epidemic. And I have my students read those, you know, theoretical materials, but also the activist materials that came about um during that that part of um, the AIDS epidemic. And then the third is a kind of high critical theory, you know, is Derrida, is understanding deconstruction and seeing how that kind of modulated and how important it was to um, queer theorists and activists, you know, and, and people like Foucault, who is another sort of European uh, theorist. Mm. So um, when I teach it that way, you know, part of what I'm trying to get my students to understand is that um, there is isn't only one queer theory and... Mm. Its critical genealogies are sort of both both high and low, you know, both they, that they they involve art and activism, and um, high European theory. And so, in that way, I you know I feel like I, I want to teach it in such a way that I'm not I'm kind of not limiting their the kinds of questions that they can ask or the kinds of materials that they can use. So it does feel very wide ranging. Even as of course there are always people who will who will dismiss almost any field of intellectual inquiry that's easier than actually understanding yeah.
0: it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, seems like part of what's Complicated here is that queer itself is a complicated term. We're doing this mm-hmm. series of the show around um, what we're calling LGBTQ jobs, um, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. Q there, uh, which we typically understand to mean queer. And some people use it questioning there or something like this, but mm-hmm. but if we understand that to mean queer, it, it it becomes just this sort of baggy catch-all itself for any form of sexual dissidence or difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, Or or specificity that's not caught up in those other more recognizable terms, however complicated they may be on closer inquiry. When you think about doing a kind of work that we call queer theory, do you feel obliged to define queer itself, this term?
1: I do in that I I I hear what you're saying about it. It can sort of mean anything dissident or anything deconstructive um, and sort of stop meaning anything at all. And so, for instance, in my second book, Time Binds, you know, I I hew pretty closely to an idea that queer ought to have something to do with sex, you know, that that Mm -hmm. we can expand our definition of sex. We can find things that are kind of unrecognizable as sex in queer theory, but that there's, there's has to be some, it has to have something to do with, with bodies and their contact and the imagination about what we can do with bodies. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's another version of queer that, that, you know, means a kind of relentless questioning of heteronormativity, you know, the idea that heterosexuality is natural and inevitable, um, that may not always mean sex. And I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I, I, I'd like to hold that intellectual space open as well. But I think that's always been the trick is to have a definition of queer that's kind of capacious enough to do unpredictable kinds of work, Mm -hmm. um, but not so capacious that it can mean everything.
0: Yeah. So in that book, uh, if we can talk about practicalities for a minute, in that book, Mm -hmm. uh, Time Binds that you alluded to your second book, um, you're talking in part uh, about notions of time, notions of chronology. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to some extent, mm-hmm. uh, your argument there is a critique of what you call uh, chrononormativity. I think that's the term you're using. Um, this this uh, notion that the ways that we can construct the schedules th- according to which we're supposed to live our lives, uh, from birth through maturation to marriage and so on, um, have something to do with the construction of maybe sexuality itself. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, let me ask a really, maybe a a flippant question about that. Do you queer your own schedule? uh, Or do you have a kind of (laughs) chrononormativity to your own academic working life? Oh,
1: that's a really great question. Um, You know, because when, as you know, when you first contacted me about this, and you're talking about a day in the life of a queer theorist, and I thought, boy, my days are so boring. (laughs) You know, a lot of them are spent in front of a computer just writing. Um, and then, you know, there's commuting back and forth to my job and there's teaching and there's editing a scholarly journal and that's just about it. Um,
0: is, is there a typical – so there is – is there a, a usual day there? Is, there? is there a schedule to those um, things?
1: Yeah, I can tell you a little about my usual day. I mean I, the funny part – what I was going to say is that the funny part about your question is that the thing that throws my time and makes it queerest is actually probably having a child, which is, mm. you know – supposedly, you know, hetero normative or at least repro normative, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing that will sort of foil all my, all my carefully laid plans. Um, uh-huh. So a, a, a typical day can be very scheduled um, because, you know, classes happen when they happen and you have to be there mm-hmm. and you have to teach them. And then you might have to go to two or three committee meetings, which also meet when they meet and you better be there mm-hmm. more or less on time um, And, um, the, the, the more loosey goosey and unpredictable days are days when I don't have classes, which will be anywhere from one to three days a week, depending on my schedule. Um, and maybe if I'm lucky one or two of those days, I'll be at home writing and, Mm -hmm. you know, I might start writing at 7am and then look around and it's 2pm. I'm starving and my bladder's full and I don't really (laughs) know what happened to me. (laughs) That's probably the queerest time of all that sort of undifferentiated flow time of writing. Um, that's suddenly disrupted by. by
0: this return to the body no
1: <laughs> exactly uh, <laughs> like oh I, I do have a body I'm not just a brain in a jar um, <laughs> that's hard to come by and and one thing about getting older and having more sort of duties and also being a parent is that I've learned how to write in little you know oh I have mm-hmm. half an hour I'm going to sit down and try to write a paragraph um, yeah. and that's a funny kind of time too I think because it's you know, sometimes I think the queerest time is is the time that you steal from whatever whatever it is you're supposed to be doing. And on the one hand, I'm supposed to be writing. But on the other hand, writing is this act of tremendous selfishness. Nobody cares about my writing, you know, but me. And so stealing it from something like doing the dishes can sometimes feel, you know, it's sort of minor <laughs> league seditious. <laughs> Um, the other thing that I mentioned that I, that I spent the last six years doing, I've just kind of peeled away from it is editing the flagship scholarly journal in lesbian, gay studies. Mm -hmm. It's called GLQ, Mm -hmm. a journal of lesbian, gay studies. And so it's, it's expanded out beyond the kind of traditional, um, LGB designation. Um, and that, you know, that's another sort of sitting in front of the computer job, um, but it, it has deadlines attached to it. And sometimes I'm sort of working at breakneck speed to get an article edited in time to get it into the next um, issue. Um, sometimes I'm moving incredibly slowly, painstakingly line editing something. Mm-hmm. So that that has its own kind of production schedule that doesn't, that doesn't care about the academic schedule or my body schedule or anything. Mm-hmm. And for a while, so- you know, for six years, the writing, the teaching and the editing were really, you know, just constantly kind of juggling those three balls up in the air.
0: Did you have a way of trying to balance them? Would you say to yourself or do you say to yourself now, I'm going to spend this amount of my day writing because I know that I have this amount of time that I have to commit to teaching and preparing for my classes and grading papers and all of that other stuff and then I'm going to have this much time left for – the uh for the journal and for that editing work mm-hmm. uh, and for other academic yeah well that's what i mean by
1: you know that's why your question was super hilarious to me because because in some <laughs> ways i'm super i'm very regimented you know I'm like, well i yeah. only have i try to write every day um i give myself breaks sometimes but you know if i have half an hour to write then i'm gonna write because that's the the part that's mostly for me and for mm-hmm. my you know relatively small audience um mm-hmm. and then yeah then the rest gets sort of stacked up according to Urgency of deadline. Um, you mm-hmm. know, teaching is another thing that you kind of can't. You can't dial it in. You know, you have to prepare those classes. You have to get those papers graded. Um, I'll often arrange my papers in little stacks of five, you know, and every five papers I'll sort of get up and reward myself with a walk around the block or a snack or a TV show or some, whatever it takes to get through it. So there's a lot of like chopping time up into these little, little bits that's really antithetical to some of the kinds of time that I'm trying to get at in quintemporality. I'm uh, sorry, in um, time binds, um, thinking yeah. about queer temporality. Um, a lot of my life is more chrononormative than I wish.
0: When I was, when I was teaching the, The part of my own schedule that I dreaded most, that I was the worst at scheduling, was the time spent grading papers. Everything else I could find time for. Yeah. But uh, grading papers would – it's really sad. And, you know, you want to give the students the best. But uh, sometimes, for me, I'm sure not for you, sometimes it would happen in a rush, smoking sad cigarettes on a balcony. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> I eat sad sugar, but but yes. And, you know, it's we, all, we, all, have our I, 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 we all think about this in <laughs> academia. sort of students don't like writing those papers and we don't like reading them. <laughs> How can we make it better? And I have a couple of creative assignments that I've developed, you know, over the years to sort of mitigate some of that pain. One of them is to... um Take When I'm teaching a lesbian gay studies class, I'll have them take a kind of mainstream text and I'll have them change somebody's gender or sexuality in the text and then rewrite mm-hmm. it physically, mm-hmm. kind of represent it. And they can do it any way they want. They can do it as a play script or a podcast or a video or, you know, and um, then they have to write a little analytic piece about sort of what happens <laughs> when you change this one factor. What else do you have to change? Um, and those are a lot of fun to read. So I, I try to slot in one creative assignment um, per class so that I don't die from reading, you know, awkward academic prose.
0: Or, or yeah, the approximation thereof, certainly. Well, so yeah. it's, I mean, w- yeah. I, w- I want to talk more about each of these branches of your work in a second. But uh, one thing I wonder, and, and I think for a lot of academics that I've known over the years, uh, this is a difficult issue to, to grapple with. But, it, you know, it's not a conventional nine to five job for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, do you ever get to shut off? or are you always on email thinking paging through new scholarship and and all of these other kind of secondary tertiary and somehow also primary responsibilities that that are part of the the job
1: well i think that the older that i got the more i learned how to just turn it off you know to just punch the clock at you know and it isn't it, it isn't anything like 9 to 5 it's more like 9 to 8 in terms of the amount of hours that I might be working. Um, I learned, you know, somewhere uh, after tenure, you know, after my first book, I learned take Sundays off. It's really Mm -hmm. important. Just (laughs) take one day a week where you're not doing this. Um, And then having a kid, you know, they don't care. They're not interested in your Latest theory about time, so that's another thing that kind of forces me to 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 put it all away. But I mean, it is a, it's an odd job because you're never done. There's never a moment where you go, "Oh, I've completed my projects. I'm, I can just lay back and take a vacation." It's more, mm-hmm. "Okay, I'm going to put this aside for a while." You know, yeah. and then it's usually I'll put this aside for a while. You know, I won't work on the journal today because I have to finish an article, or I I won't finish this article today because. I have to devote half the day to grading papers. So it's always putting one thing aside and turning to another. And I think, you know, I think overwork and burnout are pretty common in, in my profession. I think that students and and parents of students and, and people who aren't in academe only see the very tip of the iceberg and they wonder, well, what kind of job is it that we only have to show up for six hours worth of classes a week? And they have no idea, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what the other parts of the job are, and and because there isn't a boss standing over you or or any kind of you know anybody managing your your time, um, you really do have to develop strategies to make sure that you give yourself some downtime and and give yeah. yourself some other parts to your life. I think people who don't end up, you know, quite distorted, I think it's really important.
0: Yeah. So let's let's talk a little about your teaching, that element of your work. Mm-hmm. What sort of – well, first of all, how many classes do you teach at any given time?
1: So my teaching load is two classes a quarter. Um, Okay. I teach at a a research one university, as they call it, which is a PhD-granting institution, which Mm -hmm. means that at least a third of my job should be research and publishing. And Mm – at least a third of it should be teaching and at least a third of it should be service to the institution and to the profession. And so that's, you know, at least three thirds, sometimes it feels like four or five thirds. Um, And at any given time, I'm usually teaching one large lecture style class with anywhere Mm -hmm. from 75 to 120 students. And then I might be teaching either a graduate seminar, which would have 12 to 15 PhD students in it, or I might be teaching a lower division class that has 30 mm-hmm. or maybe a kind of another upper division class that's a little smaller, maybe 50. Mm-hmm. And we're on the quarter system. So that's 10 weeks of kind of the very pounding sort of rhythm of preparing classes and and grading papers and and whatnot. Um, and so, you know, again, it's the tip of the iceberg thing that those six hours a week, which is, you know, that's what my classroom time is. And then two office hours a week. So that's eight hours a week. Seems like nothing. Until you remember that the prep time for a lecture class is about 10 hours of work for one hour of lecture. That's about the – I haven't been able to get it much. Maybe sometimes I can do six or seven hours of prep for a one-hour lecture. But um, when you add in also reading the material um, in addition to preparing the lecture, you know, really is about 10 hours. So, yeah, yeah. So reading through the material I've assigned and then constructing some, you know, uh, combination of lecture and activities for the students and discussion questions and whatnot – so that keeps me pretty busy, you know. During my teaching quarters, I would I probably spend, I don't know, maybe thirty thirty five hours a week on teaching, total.
0: So we're already at almost a full time job, whatever it may look like in the public facing side. Yeah,
1: that's what the funny part is. Is you know, um, academia is really several full time jobs <laughs> combined into mm-hmm. one. So when I was editing the journal, the GLQ journal, which I did for six years, that was about five or six hours a week. Um, mm. Teaching, like I said, 30 to 35, you know, research is as many hours as you can cram in. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there's the, you know, other things like I'm required to be on um, two committees within my department and those committees might meet, let's say, a total of three hours a month each. So that would be six more hours on committee work. And then there's things like graduate exams, you know, which might be another five hours a month. Um, There's graduate students and their dissertation chapters, each of which takes maybe three hours to read. And I might have, I don't know, three of those a month and, you know, and so on and so on and so on and so on. Um, It adds up, it sounds like. So it does add up. And, and, you know, I think what I always say about this job is um, very little of it is alienated labor. You know, very little of it is something you don't want to be doing where you're not using your brain maybe grading Mm. sometimes is that the rest of it is really very um immersive and interesting sometimes committee meetings i guess they're not that exciting but a lot of it really does you know allow you to use your your creativity and you you have a lot of autonomy over when you do a lot of your tasks um Mm. but there are a lot of them It, it doesn't you know there is a kind of sense that you could be doing more on every front
0: You've just used this term uh, coming out of Marxist theory, alienated labor, uh, (laughs) that that work that we do for that we don't really get to own. um, Mm -hmm. It it also seems like the kind of thinking that you do as part of your job permeates your experience of it. Is that fair to say?
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when to go back to teaching, I mean, you know, you're always wondering, or I'm always wondering, how to make the kind of transformative material that I'm teaching these concepts, you know, how can I? not just be telling my students about them, but somehow figure out how to kind of enact them in the classroom. Mm, um, mm-hmm. So teaching is really a wonderful area where if you're teaching, you know, about um, activism and strategies of empowerment for the marginalized, well, then you have a bunch of students sitting in front of you who, um, you know, may have um, gotten tuition hikes they can't afford, or they may be students who are terrified about what's going to happen to the with the DREAM Act. Um, and so even if they're not... You know, students for whom queer activism is, is the most immediate um, place they're going to take their political energy. They're they're taking the concepts that you're teaching them and they're moving them into the places where they care, that they care most about. And they will often, you know, if you're lucky, they'll challenge you right in the classroom. You know, they'll want to mm-hmm. kind of flip around the power relations in the classroom or, um, or transform the classroom. And, and that's really, that's kind of magical. I'm always really thrilled when that happens, even when it's kind of awkward in the moment.
0: there's a There's a kind of strong current of contrarianism that runs through a lot of queer theoretical work. Um, I imagine that some of that can be upsetting even for people who think of themselves as aligned with uh, queer positive politics more generally. Mm-hmm. Do you ever mm-hmm. encounter resistance from students when you're teaching this material these these complex and oh, difficult yeah. traditions?
1: Oh, of course. Yeah, I mean, there are two things come to mind immediately. Um, and Um The first one is, you know, my first book, The Wedding Complex is really about the relationship, the non-relationship between the sort of wedding as a performance and then marriage law and the way that marriage law kind of diminishes the possibilities for kinship, even as it's creating, you know, these official lines of inheritance and property relations. And my students for a long time were very upset by the idea that I didn't think gay marriage was liberating. <laughs> they really, you know, That had been a really important source of sustenance and activist for them. And activism yeah. for them. And so, you know, they really didn't want to hear about it. Um, so that was one. And the other is, you know, I have this class called Literature, Gender and Sexuality that I teach around race. And I really ask them to think about how the concepts that we have to think about sexuality with are kind of white, white inflected con- concepts and and how. Um, so I, I get them first to understand that, you know, under slavery, um, gender, you know, masculinity and femininity were prohibited they the the kind of normative ways that we mm-hmm. live, masculinity and femininity, and even the, you know 19th or 18th century people did were not, were not available to slaves. Um, and so those, that kind of breakdown of, of their, what they thought they signed up for can be really upsetting to students. And, and sometimes mm-hmm. they, that's not what they wanted, and they're upset.
0: Well, yeah. What happens when students get upset? I mean, how do you engage with them in those moments? Do they speak up? Do they come to your office hours?
1: I, a lot of different things. I mean, if I'm lucky, they, they speak up, they come to my office hours, or they even act out in the classroom. That's okay. You know, as long as mm-hmm. they're not, you know, actively impeding the education of other students, I, I'm okay with an explosion in the classroom. And um, that's a chance to to help them break through to another conceptual universe. Um, and I think, you know, college should be a place where what you thought you knew gets kind of shattered and then rebuilt and, re- and you, you are the person who has to rebuild it and build it differently. And so um, so I appreciate those moments. I mean, it's hard when they're directed at me as a human being. But, you know, mm. part of what I have to say to myself always is, you know, I'm the one standing here, you know, half a century old with tenure. So it's okay. You know, this, <laughs> this student really can't hurt me. Um, yeah. And that's very different than a student who walks into your classroom with a kind of reactionary, you know, I'm going to troll you attitude. I really mm-hmm. don't get that very often. Yeah. Um, and even those students, you know, who start with their heels very much dug in, um, sometimes a little by little, something gets them. They start to question something they, you know, they're one of their deepest beliefs, and they come to a place that you wouldn't imagine that they could come. I had this wonderful moment. This was years ago, but I taught this little lesbian lit seminar, and I had this student do his um, final presentation on "Don't Ask, Don't Tell." um, in full Navy dress. And he really, you know, he, he had come in, um, wanting to kind of learn more about his gay friend, you know, he didn't really know why he was there. Um, and he got to a place where he could really critique the military while being in it. And that that was really beautiful to me to see. Um, so I think those are, you know, we always talk about teachable moments and it's, it's sort of a cliche phrase, but, but it's true that the moments that they feel, the most disoriented and the least kind of affirmed can be the moments where they really learned something.
0: Mm. Those are the ones that probably linger for a lot of them as well. I would imagine. I think
1: so. I mean that was my experience of college certainly like the yeah. the things that made me tear my hair out and cry and feel ashamed of myself, you know, sort of became <laughs> you know, the tools that I had new tools to to think with if I could sort of get over myself, which, you know, I think we all eventually do. And I think Uh one thing about teaching that's so interesting to me is there's a lot of right-wing blah-blah about measuring outcomes, you know, and making sure that teachers are performing and students are learning. And you often can't tell what a student has learned until a decade later. Sure. You know, they haven't processed it. They haven't figured out where it fits into their – who they're going to be and what they're going to do until much, much later. And there's kind of no way of measuring that. But it's one of the delights of teaching.
0: Yeah. So, you know, there's another element in play here, which is that queer theory, much of what we call queer theory, is famously, maybe even notoriously difficult, even by the standards of so-called critical theory more generally within Mm -hmm. uh, academic scholarship. Part of that is because many of the thinkers who help shape the field um, are challenging writers. Part of that is because there are a lot of really complicated ideas in play. Judith Butler, who we've mentioned a few times, uh, draws variously on Kant and Hegel and Derrida and Foucault and all of these big uppercase mononymic figures of philosophical history in her work. And that's that's true for many other scholars as well. I assume that students who come to your classes haven't always read extensively from the philosophical traditions that Judith Butler and others, including you, uh, are drawing on um but do you find ways to make that difficult complex thinking accessible to them or do they mm-hmm. just have to struggle through
1: <laughs> both <laughs> both <laughs> i mean i i think there you can you can put it in a beautiful little package and tie it with a bow and drop it in their laps and that doesn't mean it's theirs so they they mm. have to they have to do the work too and and prose that makes them do the work is part of the learning process um even as i think you know, part of my job is to stand back and help them synthesize what they've already said and connect it to what they may not be able to say yet and kind of pull up the little the little nuggets of gold that, that come up in conversation. Kind of I, I always joke about teaching as you sort of give them back to themselves, you know, twice as large as they thought they were, you know, sort of help mm-hmm. them put things together. Um, I think it's um, the kind of prejudice against queer theory as being abstruse doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me when n- nobody's, you know bothering the cancer researchers about their jargon, you know, that it, sure. fields have their, yeah. have their shorthand, they have their critical vocabulary. Yeah. And part of my job is to help them use that critical vocabulary. And also eventually to create a critical vocabulary of their own. And it doesn't mm-hmm. have to take the form of, you know, four syllable words. Um, mm-hmm. Another really wonderful thing about teaching career theory is that some of the theory doesn't look like theory. I mean, it looks like poetry. You know, if you look at that that seminal collection, This Bridge Called My Back, which was a collection of writings by women of color published in the 80s, you know, there are personal essays, there's there's poetry, um, there are short stories, um, and that's a form of knowledge making too. And so, you know, the other challenge is to take your super sophisticated student who speaks Judith Butlerese and, and help them see that, you know, Audre Lorde's poetry is also theoretically complex and rich. Yeah. Um, And so we don't have kind of one body of of scholarship that's just kind of telling us the truth that we can just get to immediately, you know, and another body of scholarship that's abstruse and complicated and that we have to work hard at. Um, They both take different kinds of work. Um, And I think, you know, with graduate students, I really want them to learn not just to apply a theory to something new, but to take what they're working on and have it sort of talk back to the theory um, Mm -hmm. in theoretical terms that they haven't found yet. Yeah. That's kind of my ideal. And I think, you know, really an example of that is right there in Time Binds when um, I was interested in w- in one chapter of that book. I have this thing I call the theory of temporal drag. And the theory of temporal drag is in part just, you know, the past pulls on the present. But it's also a theory of of drag performance. Mm. Um, and I was interested in looking at drag performances where people used kind of archaic or obsolete um, fashions and styles of being gendered, you know, forms of mm-hmm. womanhood that we kind of don't live anymore in male-to-female drag. And um, and I didn't think Butler had really theorized that. And I thought that was really quite fascinating. And sort of the more I thought about those kinds of performances, the more I was able to, you know, think of temporal drag as its own theoretical object, you know, um, to think differently about drag, but also to think differently about time. And so it was really looking... Looking at some of Butler's material and looking at um, some other kinds of material that featured that sort of weird play with anachronism that allowed me to, to write theory that was in conversation with Butler's work. And that's, that's what I want. You know, it's great if undergrads can do that. But graduate students, I really want them to, to do that.
0: Yeah. Miss Cracker, the uh, drag queen that we had on the show a few episodes ago, uh, described her kind of ideal look to us as um, whatever people in the 30s and 40s thought the future was going to look like. <laughs> uh, so she's Perfect. creating these these kind of these looks that are inspired by flash gordon comics and and mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. Uh, of that that nature from this earlier moment um that i think really speak to some of what you're talking about the ways that that mm-hmm. past and present get entangled in our relationship to something that we call the body or in our relationship to someone else's body mm-hmm. uh, our understanding of our sexualities yeah. and ourselves yeah and uh, but maybe that also gets at something else you said, that, that there are ways in which maybe even a drag performance like Ms. Crackers, intentionally or not, can theorize uh, as as fully or as powerfully as a familiar quantity like Judith Butler uh, might. Mm.
1: Oh, I think they do. I think they do. And that's partly why, you know, sometimes I, I don't feel like a theorist because I don't just write philosophy. I'm interested in sort of… Mm-hmm objects and literary texts and you know stuff that I that I that I want to um spend time with and sort of unfold and see what kinds of theory it makes and I think for me drag was was the best way to learn about what I think of as um lost alternative futures which it sounds like miss mm-hmm. cracker that's what she's doing, right? The
0: I think you two would get along. Futures that
1: did not come to be, that were imagined at a certain moment and didn't, didn't really unfold quite mm. the way they were imagined to unfold. And there they are just kind of lying around like thrown away objects. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something quite yeah. beautiful about that and, they're, and very poignant. And they kind of tap into what I think is a very queer longing for things to be otherwise than they are. Um, yeah. And to look at moments where other people were imagining things otherwise. Yeah, It's very powerful.
0: It, it is. And it also gets at something that comes up in your own writing. Um, you described a few minutes ago, you described writing as an act of selfishness because you're taking this time to yourself and and pulling something out of your head uh, and and hoping that the world will read it. Um, but in, in Time Binds, you also talk about writing as an act that's oriented to the future. Um, Mm-hmm. That that anticipates a reader, a world that will mm-hmm. still exist to read and hopefully accept the thing that you've written.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, mm-hmm. When when you're writing, who do you see yourself writing for?
1: Who's your audience
0: <laughs> for your scholarship? There are a
1: few different answers to that. I mean, one is I'm going to quote Gertrude Stein, you know, that the lesbian writer of the left bank, uh, you know, left bank Paris, turn of the century, um, who said, I write for myself and strangers. That's true. I write for publics that don't exist yet, you know, that maybe aren't born yet. Um the other is I write for my friend Pete. I mean, you know, so I also write for or my friend Dana. you know, I write for people whose work i I admire and I'm thinking with, and I kind of want to be in constant conversation with, but they're in another state teaching at another institution. Um, and i I write for I write for work that doesn't exist yet in the hope that somebody can pick up something i've thought and they can run with it and they can think thoughts that i haven't myself reached i really think it's wonderful you know to see my work used for different kinds of projects and actually i've i've been really lucky with time binds that people have picked up my work you know i've had artists um and performers uh read it and think with it and then create objects that i myself don't have the talent or imagination to create and i've had other theorists kind of um work with it and i I don't mind if that includes pretty serious critique. I think it's just wonderful to be in the conversation at all. So I'm partly writing mm. for what doesn't exist yet and what I myself can't create, you know, in the hopes that if I put something out there, you know, somebody else can pick it up and run with it.
0: O- all writing that's in that really sense. that's a privileged is... job. Yeah, yeah. and uh, all writing in in some senses is, is sort of an act of world, maybe not world building, but world making. It's mm-hmm. especially when you're so. dealing with I these that it is. issues of the body uh, and of society. You're presumably trying to create something, not just to describe or diagnose it. Um, and I think that
1: I think that's right. And I think that's true of teaching, too, that, you know, the best thing of the best way to think about teaching is you're creating possibilities in the future things your students Mm -hmm. can think and do and and do and think together that will make you obsolete. I mean, ideally, I'd like to just (laughs) fade away and radiate, you know, and let my students take over the world and and do a better job with it. Um, And so there's something really, to me, very utopian about about both teaching and writing, which are, you know, the majority of my job. And then the other thing I was thinking about, you know, when I was thinking about talking with you was the way that so many academics have, um, queer academics, have other... Projects that they're involved in that, that really are not, that are outside the academy um, and that are part of that queer, queer world making. So, for example, my friend Kate Drabinski, who teaches at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, um, runs a lesbian popcorn cart. And hands out bags what? of popcorn that are printed <laughs> printed with um, LGBTQ history. <laughs> so you know, it's like, a wonderful project. We actually did a series in the this of this in, show in
0: Baltimore, and I wish that we had done an episode of, with her about that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's so an awesome little project. It's, and then my yeah. friend Jasper Poir, who's at Rutgers, who does all this work for Palatine, um, for Palatine Solidarity. Mm-hmm. Or my friend Jennifer Doyle at, Doyle at UC Riverside, who DJs at a, at a queer club night. Or my friend Anne Bailey at Haverford who works on queer truckers and spends a lot of time fighting regulations that make truckers' lives and their labor harder. So these are all, you know, these are ways that that world-making impulse that is queer theory, I think, is not just world-making within the academy, but but kind of leaks out. Um, and and then that leakage, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm acting like it's a one-way transmission, but it's not, because what comes back from those other places then... You know, makes the academic work um, more beautiful and complicated and smarter than it could ever be. And that's why, for me, the 90s were so important because activism and art and um, and academe were very much intertwined in the project of sort of making queer theory. And now mm. I'm a little older and I can't do all the things I want to do, but sure. my friend's doing really amazing things. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, well, you touch on something important here too, which is that. Queer theory, whatever it is, is rarely just about lesbian, gay, Mm -hmm. bisexual, and trans issues. Um, It tends to be in the kind of, uh, you know, to use a term of our moment, it tends to be a deeply intersectional uh, field Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of of inquiry Mm -hmm. and action and sometimes even direct activism. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is true— in your work as well even if you're not out doing AIDS activism now as it sounds like you once were um you are uh, grappling with a range of issues that encompasses uh, so-called post-colonial studies uh, you've talked mm-hmm. a lot about um the way that uh, racial history plays into your scholarship and teaching um, how do you kind of find your own way through this you know in your writing in in your scholarship how do you find your own way through this array of possible issues uh and concerns that that seem to pull you toward them.
1: Mm, that's a great question. You know, sometimes it just feels like um like my eyes are closed and I'm following like a rope bridge, you know, sort of from knot to knot and I don't exactly mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. how. Um some of it is very personal. Um You know, the my first book, The Wedding Complex, certainly came from a sort of sense of everybody's getting married. (laughs) What's going to be left for people like me who are not marriageable? (laughs) You know, Um, and I had to read a lot of you know a lot of history of marriage. I had to read a lot of law. I had to read a lot of anthropology. I just I had to read around in very different disciplines to even know how to think about marriage. And Time Binds was sort of the same way. I it I started writing the first chapters around. The turn of the millennium and, and i i kept thinking you know i'm watching the the act up and and aids activism become kind of museum exhibits and aids is normalizing and i'm getting older and i don't know how to think about what what time means anymore if i'm not going to follow like the life path that was laid out for me as a you know young straight girl in, in 1974 or whatever so I, and again i had to read you know high of philosophy i had to look at lots of videos i had to look at performances um so I think it, you know, it partly just comes from the question of what do I need to, what do I need to bring to bear on this question or problem? Mm-hmm. It can come from anywhere. Um, m- most recently, for instance, um, so I'm, the book that I'm working on now is about what I'm calling sense methods, and it's in the 19th century. So I've actually kind of situated myself in, a, in an earlier century mm-hmm. ways of doing things and knowing things with the body that are both um, non-linguistic and um, where... They may or may not be about sex or or what bodies Mm -hmm. are doing. It's not recognizably sexual. And I have a chapter on, it's a little bit of a spinoff from Time Binds, but a chapter on chronic time and kind of what it means to live the chronic. And that has everything to do with having been with somebody for a decade who's chronically ill um, Mm -hmm. and watching her live time really differently than me in ways that sometimes really frustrated me, you know, (laughs) were a Mm -hmm. source of contention between us, but also that I learned enormously from. And that meant, you know, to try to think about chronic time, you know, that meant reading in disability studies, reading work by um, my colleague Ellen Samuels at Wisconsin-Madison, who's written on um, what she calls crypt time. Um, and um, her work, she does a lot of her work corresponding with disabled and chronically ill people across the country. Um, and kind of that's part of how her knowledge base works. And then I get to sort of borrow from that. Um, it meant reading um it meant reading things about like the um, health and conservation movement, you know, of the of the early twentieth century. and suddenly reading like weird policy um, documents that have to do with the mm. conservation of human energy. Um, so I think that's that's you know, interdisciplinarity often comes from asking a question first, and then finding what you need to answer it as you go. And that's why it feels mm. that it feels so sort of oddly like groping.
0: That must be a humbling experience a lot of the time, though.
1: I think it is, but I think it's also great that um, I don't know in advance what I can think, and I often have to Mm. write it down to know. And so there's a kind of constant constant questing that's part of my job that I would really like to think that everybody could have in their job. I would really hope that for everybody. Speaking of unalienated labor, I mean, I would hope that. Everybody has some part of their life. It doesn't actually have to be their paid job, but some part of their life that's really kind of a quest where what they need to answer their questions is a surprise every time.
0: Yeah. It seems uh, – I mentioned earlier that, that some people take that cue that in LGBTQ and make it questioning and maybe queer can mm-hmm. be about those questions that we ask although. Queer theorists aren't, of course, the only people who should be asking questions uh, every no. day in academia or any other field. Um, but but no. it is – there is something to be said for, for what you're describing in terms of the ways that it butts up against, I think, a, a kind of stereotypical understanding of what a humanities academic college professor is or what, really, what any kind of college professor is. Just mm-hmm. that we're we're often led to expect that a professor is going to be a font of expertise, that they're going to mm-hmm. have all of mm-hmm. the answers – from the start, but I imagine it sounds like clearly in the research that you do for your own work. But I would imagine also in your teaching that sometimes you have to start from a position of not knowing uh, and acknowledge yeah. ignorance.
1: Yeah, and and to really understand not knowing as as not a crisis, you know that it's that it's this incredibly great place to be to not already know, and that's a funny thing in working with graduate students because they they want to already know. You know, they want to. They mm. want to be like ahead of the knowledge, looking backwards at it in their rearview mirror, <laughs> because that feels safe and that feels like mastery. And and some of that training is is helping them, you know, kind of develop a radical openness and, and unknowingness and and to ask questions that feel rearguard or obvious or stupid. And that those are often the questions that really can change the the whole conversation. And so, sure, there are times to pull back and lecture. I mean, you know, I'm not you know it's i haven't been doing this for 25 years for nothing i have things to say sure, yeah. but um but i think there's also times to i love looking at students undergraduates even and saying i have no idea i've been looking at this passage for 25 years and i don't understand it you know what do you think mm-hmm. and they often come up with just really stunning interpretations and i can say to them you know really with with real honesty that um humanities work is you're, you're, you can do it at a beginner level and come up with something amazing. There's no kind of um, prerequisite for having an insight into a literary text. Um, that doesn't mean every single thing you do is going to be at the same level of expertise, but new knowledge can, can come um, from anywhere. Yeah.
0: He, you know, speaking of new knowledge, at least in Time Binds, many of the cultural artifacts, the objects, the the texts, uh, to use these academic terms that you're writing about, uh, are things that have been largely overlooked by other scholars. Mm-hmm. You're talking about experimental films that may not even be easy to see uh, or to find mm-hmm. um, and, and things of that nature. Um, do you consciously seek out, um, I don't want to say obscure uh, texts, but um, less familiar things in your work? Or is, is it that just stuff that material that you happen across as you're you know conducting your own research and thinking about what you might write
1: i think a little bit of both i mean that book also you know i'm like oh and by the way frankenstein (laughs) you know like there's some canonical stuff in there too um but i think that part of when i wrote that book i was really interested in independent film and video and i felt like the smartest thoughts about time and about the relationship between time and sexuality were that's where they were coming from, rather than from scholarly works or already kind of canonized um, texts. So um, and, and then I also, I take a little bit of a cue from and not all my work is like this, but that book is like this, my, my colleague, um, the late Jose Munoz, who really saw part of what queer theory was about as gathering together um, publics and gathering, you know, kind of archiving what was ephemeral about queer culture. And so really writing a kind of history of the present. And so with that book, I, I really did want to do some work describing and thinking about um, works by artists who were not going to be making blockbuster Hollywood movies. I mean, You know, maybe some yeah. of them might someday, I don't know, but that, you know, who were really working independently and and not making a lot of profit and they were kind of you know thinker artists um and i knew that that if the book did well that that libraries would buy some of those films Mm. you know and people would teach some of those films and that was really important to me to kind of pay homage to um the people who had always fed me i mean i've always had artists for friends and um filmmakers and photographers and you know just they've always been people with whom i've shared ideas and from whom I've I've drawn a lot of intellectual sustenance so it was important to me to do a kind of payback I mean you could also say it was really parasitic I don't want to be too <laughs> utopian um, but the artists were very generous with me <laughs> yeah. and they allowed me to use their work and, and they were generous about my thinking about their work so that was kind of a wonderful way to be with them
0: yeah well you also you you edited this journal you mentioned that GLQ mm-hmm. um you just, as I understand it, sent out your last issue of it from your six-year tenure as yes, I editor of this long-lived publication. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. Uh, but, um, I, you know, I don't know a huge amount, despite my own time in academia, I don't know a huge amount about how journal editing works. But I'm going to guess mm-hmm. that at some level this is an act of generosity to the field <laughs> as well because you were not paid for that, were you?
1: No, sadly, I wasn't paid either in money or in <laughs> course release time or anything. No, it was utterly a labor of love. Yeah. Um, How did that even come about? I,
0: like, I would never <laughs> – if, if one of my friends said, hey, you know, like I'm thinking of editing this publication uh, and uh, I'm not going to get paid for it. I would say like don't do that. But but in academia, it's, it's a
1: little more normal
0: uh, than it would be yeah. in, say, journalism.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean I think it's important to remember that, that I do draw a salary, you know, so mm-hmm. – um, and the salary really covers my teaching, my research, and my service to the profession. And this is service to the profession, so okay. um, I'm not starving on the street. Um, <laughs> of course not, no. But it is a labor of love. Um, I, you know, I came up in queer theory, and um, one of the wonderful things about queer theory in the '90s was that some of the best work was coming from graduate students, um, mm. people who didn't have academic jobs at all. Um, people who had been kind of marginalized by the Academy activists who, who weren't involved in the Academy. And so it felt important to me when I, when I got sort of old enough and <laughs> whatever you want to call it, powerful enough, I don't know, interesting enough to, 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 to help new work, you know, to, to help find people out there who may or may not have fancy jobs or may not have jobs at all, but who were, who were, who were writing wonderful essays and, mm-hmm. um, to give those essays um, a venue. Mm-hmm. So that was very much a labor of love. And there, there are a couple of authors who I sort of plucked out of my submissions pile way back in 2011 when I first started. And, you know, who've just published their first books and gotten tenure. And I know that I was part of um, helping their careers. And that, that was really important to me. Um, I also Dude. just happen to love writing. And I love Mm -hmm. the English language and I love sentences. And so Mm -hmm. even though editing can be very painstaking and make you want to tear your hair out and make you grumpy, it's also there's something wonderful about like figuring out, oh, this is how this sentence should work. (laughs) Or like this Mm -hmm. argument, if this paragraph were up here, this argument would be much stronger. It's a kind of an architectural work Mm -hmm. that I got a lot of pleasure out of. Um, So, yeah, the you know, the. It's I, I think academics, uh, young academics often don't realize that, you know, their work is being review- reviewed, peer reviewed by read and evaluated by people who aren't being paid <laughs> and that it's being edited and published by people who aren't being paid. And that's why it's so slow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I tried to remember that when I was in the field. But did, did, did editing the journal, editing GLQ, give you a, a new perspective on this area of inquiry? Uh Mm -hmm. gender and sexuality studies, queer theory, whatever you want to call it, Um, more generally. uh, Mm -hmm. You you loved this work.
1: Yeah, I mean, I did it. Did you love it differently afterward? (laughs) Yeah, I did. I mean, I did it for a selfish (laughs) reason, edited the journal, which was, you know, once you get older and you're doing all these committee meetings and teaching and dissertation chapters and, you know, your job just gets bigger and bigger and you just, it's hard to keep reading in the field. It's hard to keep reading Mm -hmm. emerging work and I really wanted to, Um. And I learned so much from doing it. I mean I learned I learned about pink washing. <laughs> you know I learned about the relationship between bestiality and and, <laughs> and the meat industry. Like I learned just sort of oh amazing. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's in my last <laughs> issue. That's a really wonderful argu- um, article. Article by he some <laughs> really interesting. Yes, um, well, he's really interested in like this whole industry, you know, industry where they actually it requires the insemination of animals by humans. I mean, so, so um, and so uh, what I saw about the field was one. It's it's very much still alive. You know, there's just so much going on, so much good work, and it's also you know changing shape. So, um. Whereas in the 90s, people were interested in sort of sex as genital sex, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a whole field called affect studies, which is really about sensations and vibrations and frequencies. States and States of um, feeling. Feeling. States of feeling. Exactly. Exactly. That queer studies has, you know, has, has overlapped with and intersected with queer studies in, in really interesting mm-hmm. ways and really changed the shape of what it can do. Um Disability studies, as such, didn't exist. Um, it, I mean, it existed, but it wasn't. It, it didn't have it kind of pr- put the pressure on queer theory in the early '90s that it now does. You know, and the whole question of sort of what counts as a natural body, you know, is a question that clearly straddles those two fields. Um, one of my goals with the journal was um, to really expand the terrain of queer of color critique. You know, mm-hmm. and work work by um, scholars of color who um, had been not necessarily identifying, you know, as queer theorists or even felt identified with the project, um, but who were taking up questions of of bodies and sensations and kinship and, you know, and, and things like that. Um, so it yeah. was really, it really did give me a, a kind of panoramic view of of a lot of the field. Um and made me feel like I could, you know, like I said, still be in the conversations because that's at the end of the day what it is. I think that's why people become academics because they want to still – it's not that they just want to keep talking themselves on a, on a podium, <laughs> but they want to keep <laughs> yeah. being in conversation <laughs> with people.
0: Right. Well, you, so you've been in this conversation for 25 years now, it sounds like, mm-hmm. maybe more, mm-hmm. uh, since the early 90s. Um, you've mm-hmm. seen through this era of of AIDS activism – watched the marriage debate uh, transform and evolve, written on those issues. Um, What do you think – this may be an unanswerable question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What, for you, is the value of queer theory today? What can it teach us or what has it taught you about living in the world?
1: Oh, gosh. I mean, I want to say (laughs) – (laughs) <laughs> there's a famous article by michael warner and lauren berlant called what can queer theory teach us about x <laughs> mm-hmm. you know i want to sort of say mm-hmm. i reject the idea that it has to have some kind of quantifiable value you know that it has to be an object lesson yeah um but i think that it um but i think that it's taught me and continues to teach me enormous humility in the face of how creative human beings are um, with their relationship to one another. Mm-hmm. That in some ways, queerness is also always about relationality, you know, about, about how people are socially and how are they connected to one another. There's a great moment in um, Carson McCullers's the, the member of the wedding um, where the main character Frankie Adams says, but what joins them to each other? What joins them together? You know, and I think that's to me, um, kind of the great question. I think Whitman asked it too in a different key. Um, and I think that queer theory teaches me that that I that it's always worth asking that and, and seeing um how that works. Hmm. And that might not be everybody's queer theory either. I think that's really important. I mean, I think for instance, um, trans studies has really risen up in a at a kind of an angle to queer theory. Um mm-hmm. And isn't always asking the same questions in the same way, and is is, is um, developing in, in directions that queer theory couldn't have predicted. Um, so I think there's a I, I think it's really the the kind of the humility that I would like to both teach and and carry forward. If yeah. that makes any sense.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for indulging me.
0: Very much my pleasure and very much a pleasure to indulge you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. This week, we also want to recommend that you check out Slate's new podcast, If Then. Each week on If Then, Slate's April Glazer and Will Remus, two of the smartest people that I work with every day— take you on a lively tour of the tech news that actually matters, from fake news in your Facebook feed to the algorithms that want your job to the Uber drivers who want a job with benefits. With newsmaking interviews of key tech industry figures, fascinating academics and top tech journalists, Will and April explore not only how the technology that's shaping our world works, but the ideas, ideologies, incentives, and biases that underlie it. Here at Working, we also love to hear from you by email. You can write to us via working at slate.com. You can also listen to past episodes at slate.com working. This episode was produced and edited by Benjamin Fresh.